when I was 20 years old, I bought the only new car that I've ever owned in my life. When I was in, that sounds weird, right? But let me explain. When I was in college, I was part of a cooperative education program. That meant we, we alternated semesters of full-time study and full-time government employment. And the co-ops at my particular agency were, were all highly cleared employees with very secure futures. And so, so our employer's credit union basically gave out new car loans like candy. And so there was this sort of predictable life cycle. Right, the co-op would drive in, and they're the beater they'd been driving for a couple of years, and they'd work for a couple of months, and then they'd get a new car loan, and they would go back to school with a much improved ride. Now, I have always been a man of simple tastes, so when my time came, I passed on the typical Mustangs and, and Explorers of the day, and bought a beautiful green Honda Accord, and I, I loved this car probably a little too much. It treated me well, treated it well. It was a great relationship. I expected to drive it forever in my youthful naivete. But our time together was tragically brief. Just a couple years later, right before Melanie and I got married, my beloved car was totaled in an accident out on Route 29. And then shortly thereafter, Melanie's car was totaled when we left it with her parents for safekeeping while we were on our honeymoon. <laughs> and these events pretty much shattered any concept that I had of growing attached to a set of wheels. Because as far as I'm concerned at that point, cars are useful from getting from point A to point B, and beyond that, they will eventually either be destroyed or become completely worthless because I've driven the wheels off them. And I've done both with subsequent cars, driven the wheels off them and destroyed them. Not my fault in any case. The point being, no matter how great your car is, it will eventually become worthless. Scott may disagree with me on this point. I respect that. But from my perspective, there is no lasting satisfaction to be found there. And that's an interesting thing because... In truth, we struggle quite often to find lasting satisfaction. Human beings are naturally dissatisfied. You might have noticed this. There's a certain unsettled quality about our spirits. And, and it's made worse by our very American culture that encourages dissatisfaction. Because it constantly tells us there is something better out there, and it's got your name on it. Dissatisfaction is often gnawing at our hearts. This is particularly true when we go through difficult circumstances and it goes on for a certain amount of time and we begin to say, well, well, surely this isn't what's meant for me, so I'm unsatisfied. I must find what is better. I must chase the person or the thing that is going to fix my problems. And the truth is that our frequent sense of dissatisfaction that, that chips away at our hearts, and in many cases erodes our closest human relationships, occurs because there is only one lasting source of satisfaction. And that is the theme of Psalm 63, which we look at today. The psalmist writes, that's not what I expected the psalmist to write at all. Nancy will get it up there. There we go. Oh God, you are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of lions will be stopped. This psalm is expressing David's desperate thirst for God. The psalmist's title explains the situation. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's the wilderness of Judah. It is not what we think of as a wilderness in North America with lots of trees. It is a desert. There's just it's the same word, wilderness and desert, in Hebrew and in Greek. And David was forced to flee into this desert twice in his life. He first spent many years on the run from King Saul when he was a young man, and he moved from cave to cave for shelter. Then as a much older man, David was forced to briefly flee from his life, for his life from his son Absalom's coup attempt. We don't know which of these two situations is the setting for the psalm, but the result is the same. David is in mortal danger, hunted by hostile forces, homeless, sheltering in caves, and desperate. David is literally hiding in this profoundly dry and weary land. And he uses that as the imagery to express the truth that the thing that he most desperately misses is God's presence. Verse 1 laments, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Despite his immediate danger and deprivation, it's God he's thirsting for. Because as verse 2 explains, he's experienced the Lord's presence and he is desperate to do so again. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What's most important about this psalm is that it's not a psalm of lament, although it starts just like one. It is Entirely the opposite. It is a, a psalm of praise. That despite David's dire and miserable circumstances in which he is unjustly persecuted, afraid for his life, betrayed by loved ones, likely separated from his family, and suffering from the discomforts and indignities of living on the lamb in caves when he is the divinely anointed king of Israel. David still finds deep satisfaction in God. Now, objectively, we look at this situation, we say David's got an awful lot to be dissatisfied about. Right? Most of us today in our 
much more comfortable Northern Virginia setting, right? It doesn't look like that here in Northern Virginia. Most of us would be pretty grumpy about all that stuff he's going through. I think many of us would be challenged. We would find it a hindrance to our spiritual life if we were going through these kinds of situations and circumstances. But David doesn't. Right? He praises God's faithful chesed. Right? That's the word for God's unique, extraordinary, steadfast love. This is what he celebrates in verse 3. Because of your steadfast love, your chesed, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David is able to praise God despite the danger to his life because in God he has found something bigger and better than life. God's faithful, enduring, unending, steadfast, said love. And so he blesses God, he praises God, he is fully satisfied in God despite a thoroughly unsatisfying situation. Verses 4 and 5 proclaim, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. As David lies awake at night on the rocky floor of a cave in the desert of Judah, he meditates on God and his steadfast love, his chesed, and he praises him in the middle of the night lying on the floor of a cave. Verse 6 continues, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He, he draws satisfaction and comfort from remembering all that God has already done for him in verse 7. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. In these things David finds peace, resting and rejoicing in God despite the obvious injustice and and discomfort and misery of his situation. He, he clings to God. He finds strength and protection in the Lord. As verses 7 and 8 proclaim, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He anticipates the certainty of God's ultimate justice in verses 9 and 10. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go out down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. And finally, he simply rejoices. Concluding in verse 11, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. These words are remarkable, aren't they? If we really think about the situation, and we think about how we'd respond to the situation, these are remarkable. On the run, in the, in the desert, living in constant danger and deprivation, David finds satisfaction for his soul. And given his deep satisfaction, I want to ask one very simple question this morning. Is your soul satisfied? Is your soul satisfied this morning? Because honestly, our souls are often not satisfied, aren't they? Right? There are probably many here today who have been battling dissatisfaction maybe for years. 
I can say this because I know that our souls were made to hunger, to desire something intensely. Our souls were made to hunger for God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, we were made with a, a sense and a, an awareness, a yearning for God and to be connected to the eternal. We are created to be in relationship with God, and yet we have fundamentally broken our relationship with the perfect and holy God of the universe through our sin and our selfishness and our rebellion. And this separation from the one being we were made to relate to has left us with deeply unsatisfied souls. The Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Our souls are naturally restless because of our brokenness and separation from the infinite God of creation. Even when we discover for a little while that we are satisfied, it generally doesn't last very long. We want something more. We want something else. We want something better. We want something different. See, we have eternity in our hearts. And we are, when we are not in a rich and vibrant relationship with the eternal God, then we will compulsively try to fill the void that's left behind with anything and everything that's close at hand. We're far away. We will chase after things to satisfy the hunger of our souls. We will pursue passions. We will dive into hobbies. We will sacrifice everything for our careers and promotions and ambitions. We will jump from relationship to relationship looking for the meaning and the fulfillment in a human being that can only be found in God. We will seek significance through our children's accomplishments. We will try to find meaning in money. We will chase after ever bigger pleasures and higher highs and more challenging accomplishments. We will buy and collect stuff at a pace that fuels the relentless growth of the self-storage industry in America. We will collect ever more expensive toys, better cars, bigger boats, nicer houses, more amazing experiences. Or perhaps we will retreat into a fruitless quest for peace or numbness or forgetfulness. None of these can keep us satisfied for long. Whatever we pursue, when we get it, we will find it does not satisfy us as we expected. It's not that good. Or we max it out. Or we run out of it. Or we break it. Or we tire of it. Or our neighbor gets or does something that's even grander, so we begin again. Our restless and unsatisfied souls inevitably seek the next bigger, better, shinier thing. 
imagining that that is the one that will, at long last, bring us lasting satisfaction. And yet, we inevitably hunger again because we have this hole in our soul that only God can fill. And yet we have separated ourselves from Him by sin and by our very pursuit of these other things. And we grow frustrated, and we, and we take that frustration out on whatever it is we wrongly expected to satisfy our souls. And this is a problem for many marriages and family relationships, even Christian marriages, where we have placed an impossible expectation and burden on our husband or our wife or our siblings or our parents or our kids to satisfy our restless soul. And so we become angry and we feel betrayed and we're disappointed when they inevitably fail us. These impossible expectations are the poisonous fruit of our culture of Disney fairy tales and romance novels that say your satisfaction will be found in a human being and when they don't deliver the goods or something wrong with them, move on. Faithful churchgoers are just as susceptible to these temptations as anyone else. We often sit here every week, we sing and we praise and we pray, and yet our souls aren't satisfied, are they? Because although our love for God is genuine, it is a different thing to love God than it is to truly seek Him and find satisfaction in Him. To recognize that He is the one who can satisfy our souls. And that's the thing, He's the only one who truly can. So how can we finally find rest for our restless and unsatisfied souls? How can we learn from David to be satisfied in God? How can we unite with him in proclaiming, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the the psalm reveals six actions we should take regardless of our situation or circumstance. Remember, David's situation and circumstance is terrible, and yet he can find satisfaction, the satisfaction that eludes so many of us on a day-to-day -day basis in 2019 in Lake Ridge, Virginia. As we do these six things, we will increasingly find the peace and satisfaction in God that has so long eluded our souls. First is to seek God desperately. David compares his desire for God to the hunger and thirst of a man wandering in the desert. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. Are you that desperate this morning for an experience of God? Am I? Right, I think that, that if I were to guess, I would say that for most of us, the answer is no. It doesn't mean we don't love God. We do. But if, but if we really want to be satisfied with Him in our souls, we need to begin with a desperate desire for God and the intention to seek Him. You see, satisfaction, as you might have realized, doesn't just happen accidentally, and it doesn't just happen because we profess our faith in God. We must seek this satisfaction, 
and it begins with a desperate desire for God and the intent to seek Him. Jeremiah 29, 13 promises, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And this is a promise that is extended to New Covenant believers in Jesus Christ in Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. God rewards those who seek Him, and He is the reward. He rewards us with Himself. When we earnestly seek God, we experience Him. We must seek Him through a living and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for human sin. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which we will commemorate later as we gather around the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is what bridged that separation between us and God, that sin that is the source of our seemingly unending dissatisfaction. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God is restored, and God's Holy Spirit comes to live within us, and we become the walking, talking temple of God, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 affirms, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And the presence of God's Spirit within us means, guarantees that when we seek God, we will find Him. Second, praise God fervently. One of the beautiful things about the Psalms is that no matter how difficult the circumstances being explored in the Psalm, and no matter, no matter what the emotions are, and the, and the Psalms really dig into every possible human emotion, Anger and joy, frustration and loneliness, abandonment and injustice, and more. Whatever is being explored in the psalm, no matter how difficult it is, the psalmist invariably concludes by expressing and affirming his faith and praise of God. And again, this doesn't happen by accident. We don't mope around and get unhappy and then suddenly we say, oh, I've accidentally fallen into praising God in the midst of my moping. It doesn't work that way. It is not an accident that he comes around and says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You see, it is an intentional decision to praise God. His, his praise is not dependent on his situation. It is dependent on God's nature. He praises because of who God is, steadfast love. And that's how we can praise in every situation. But again, praising in every situation is not something that just comes to us automatically, is it? Complaining comes much more naturally to us. And so we must choose to intentionally speak and sing and pray and praise who God is, His nature and majesty, His beauty and kindness, His goodness and mercy, His grace and holiness, His righteousness and power, His wisdom and knowledge his presence and patience and his glory, no matter what. The great commandment says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And if we are to find satisfaction in God, we need to bring that kind of love into every act of worship we perform, whether it is public on Sunday morning or private in our car. So as we worship here together today, have you, 
Will you give God every part of yourself, heart, soul, body, and mind to praise God? Third, think about God deeply. Never settle for shallow thinking about an infinitely deep God. Over and over again, the Bible invites us to meditate on God and His Word almost as if it were a good thing. And it is. This is exactly what David is talking about in verse 6. You can think about, you can read about, you can study and celebrate the attributes of God for all of time, and you will never run out of new aspects and new insights to enjoy and celebrate. Because He is infinite, and we are not. So don't settle for simplistic images or understandings of God. Study His Word every day. Meditate on it. Think carefully and deeply about a portion of it. Think and pray about God's glorious attributes and nature. There is always something to think about God. But if you run out of ideas, and I understand that happens for sure, if you run out of ideas, just read the Psalms from beginning to end. One at a time, perhaps one a day, and learn from the inspired thinking and the rich praise of God that is found throughout. Fourth, remember God's help frequently. One of the marvelous things we discover as we read through the Bible is how often the great works of God are recited. Oh, look, we're talking about the Exodus again. See, the story of the Exodus is retold countless times throughout the Old Testament before it is reenacted more perfectly by Jesus who leads us on our forever exodus from slavery to sin and death. The great stories of God's work in humanity are repeated specifically because humans have short memories. Despite the extraordinary things that God has done and is doing, we are very quick to forget. And I don't mean that we intellectually forget. I mean, if we were quizzed and had to write down great stuff God had done, we could make that list. But we forget with our hearts. Dramatic events lose their impact unless we are intentional about bringing them up to mind and thinking them over and rehearsing them to ourselves and reflecting on them and praising God for them. To find satisfaction in God, particularly during those seasons when He feels most distant and disinterested, we need to take time to carefully remember all those earlier times when God has been faithful in helping. So recall stories from the Bible about God's faithfulness and intervention, and remember stories from your life or your family's history where God rescued you from seemingly impossible situations. Remember God's past help the way David does in verse 7, and understand then that because you know this is what He has done in the past, you can believe that He is very present in whatever situation you are facing today. Fifth, cling to God tightly. It is incredibly easy. Hear me on this. It is incredibly easy to be a faithful Christian who does not cling tightly to God. Many of us do it all the time. I've certainly done it plenty. It is one thing to proclaim Christ. It is another to fully depend on Him. We could be here multiple times each week, loving and praising God, meaning every word of it, and yet we still try to do everything outside of this place in our own strength. 
rather than admitting our weaknesses and clinging to God. Verse 8 confesses, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. See, for all of his skills and all of his talents and all of his accomplishments, David finds his strength in God, clinging tightly to him. And Jesus invites us to draw ever nearer to him, to cling to him, to walk in the Spirit through prayer and meditation. Consider the invitation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who wants rest for your souls? Jesus invites us into it, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is an open invitation to find satisfaction in Christ. Because Jesus knows that many of us here are struggling. That we are desperately trying to tread water amidst the craziness of Northern Virginia life. And much of our struggle lies in our stubborn or unconscious insistence on doing things ourselves. We very proudly say, I got this. When Jesus has invited us to say, you take this. The imagery in Matthew 11 is of two oxen yoked together to pull a heavy load. And he's inviting each of us to yoke ourselves alongside of him and let him do the heavy pulling. So picture yourself choosing to walk alongside Jesus, laboring together with the burdens of life. And in laboring alongside Christ, clinging to him tightly, you will find satisfaction and rest for your weary and unsatisfied soul. And that's a promise. Finally, rejoice in God passionately. This is the conclusion of Psalm 63. Rejoice and exult in God. No matter our situation or circumstance, to realize we have a loving God who created us intentionally and uniquely, who redeems us from sin and death through His Son, Jesus Christ, who reconciles and relates to us through Christ, who transforms us by Christ's power, and who offers us satisfaction through Christ. The point is, we always have so much to rejoice about. And so Paul can write in Philippians 4.4, Despite being in chains, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. That's what satisfaction really looks like. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let us rejoice in the Lord always, for He alone satisfies our souls. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, You know better than we do that we are creatures of dust that our hearts and our souls are deeply restless and always looking for satisfaction in the next thing, whatever it may be. And so we chase, we pursue, we struggle, we sacrifice to try and chase after those things we think will satisfy our souls. And it is foolishness, Lord. It will not satisfy our souls. Only you can satisfy our souls. 
And so, Lord, as we are gathered here and as we prepare to come before the Lord's table, I pray that you would hear us as we confess to you the dissatisfactions of our souls and the the wrong-headed ways that we have chased satisfaction outside of you, Lord. Hear our confessions now. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for looking for, for ultimate meaning and significance that can only be found in you, but for looking for it in people, things, accomplishments, and all the rest. Lord God, turn our hearts to you. Help us to be a people that seek you desperately, that praise you, that praise you. Lord God, help us to be a people who like David, think deeply about you. Remember all of the good that you have done. Cling to you and rejoice in you. Lord, we lift these requests up that you would soothe our restless souls and help us to find true satisfaction each day in you. In the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.